Scripture reading today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and bind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The word of the Lord. Hello, Trinity Church. It is my privilege to be joining your live stream today. Thank you for welcoming me in. And it's my hope that as we look at this story in Isaiah, where Isaiah goes to the temple, he meets God, um, he sees God, that we'll examine what would it mean for us to see God? What would it mean for us to experience God? How can we know the real God is really at work in our lives? After all, that's really what Christmas is about, isn't it? That you have the real God becomes a real person, a real baby, born into the real world, to real people who have real lives. And so how does God work in our lives? How can we know he's real? How can we know we're interacting with him? You see, because one of the great things about following Jesus, right, this Christian life, but also one of the hard things is that we're constantly in need of spiritual renewal. What I mean by that is that uh, if we really can know God in a personal way, well, like all other relationships, we're constantly needing to reconnect, renew that relationship, keep it kindled. And yet, um, that's obviously really difficult, but that's also the promise is that we actually can always reconnect and know God. So this isn't going to be a, uh, you know, slap each other around because you don't take baby Jesus seriously enough kind of thing. Uh, it won't be that. Um, instead, just as God initiates to Isaiah, just as God 
initiated and coming as a, as a baby at Christmas, the, the holiday that we just celebrated. Um, it's God initiating. And so what are the common threads that we can see here in Isaiah's story for how he reconnects with God that we can then see in our own lives for how God might be initiating to us, how he might be at work in our own lives and how we can have our own sort of personal renewal, our own spiritual renewal. Because here's what's great is that whether you're exploring Christianity for the first time or whether this is the millionth time for you in church, um, Isaiah has already been serving God, has known God, has grown up going to temple all his life. And yet here in Isaiah chapter six, he has a renewal in that relationship with God. And the same thing that leads to his renewal is the same thing that leads to you experiencing God for the first time. So wherever you may be, there are common themes that we're going to be able to pull out. And there's so much to this story, but I just want to focus in on three of those themes uh, or three things rather that first is that if you're going to see God, if you're going to know that God's really at work in your life, know that your foundations will shake. God will shake your foundations. But two, God will give you an unshakable foundation. The only reason he shakes those foundations in the first place is so that he can replace it and give you an unshakable foundation. And then three, it's on that foundation that God will build a life of meaning and significance for you beyond which that you could have imagined. So three things we're going to see. One, if you're going to see God, if you're going to know God, if you're going to experience God or draw near to him, God will shake your foundations. God will replace those foundations so that they're unshakable. And then God will build on that foundation a life of meaning and significance beyond which that you could have imagined. So let's go ahead and dive right in then on that first point. God will shake your foundations. If I could put this another way, if 2020 has taught us nothing, it's that when times are tough, right? When things are falling apart, we want to turn to God. We want to experience him. We want more of him in our times of need when our foundations are shaking. But as we're going to see in this story, God's there when the foundations are shaking. You can turn to him. However, you should be warned, you should be conscious, you should be cautioned that your foundations might shake even more. Here's why I say that. It's because right here off the, off the jump, we're told that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So in Isaiah's day, everything's falling apart. And it's actually now about to get even worse. You see, King Uzziah was probably the one bright spot. Sure, he had his, his missteps and his mistakes, but he was a good king. And things were going well under his reign. However, things kind of start to take a turn. And so what Isaiah has been doing from chapters 1 through 5, before all this, is he's been pronouncing a series of woes. <laughs> Not like woe, like Keanu Reeves' woe, but woe, like W-O-E. Um, another way to translate would be, you know, cursed are you. You see, prophets, and Isaiah being a prophet, weren't just people who like mysteriously told the future, right? But prophets were uh, probably a better analogy um, for today would be, you know, attorneys. Um, and they were God's attorneys. 
And it wasn't so much that they were defending God, that they were God's defense attorneys, but rather they were God's prosecution that he would send to the nation when they were turning away from his original design for them. That they were to be, right, that, that city on the hill, a model of, of, of justice and security, um, a life with God. They were to be God's people and God's presence, building, you know, the kingdom of, of God. And, and yet Isaiah has says in chapters 1 through 5 that basically, you know, curse to you. Here's all the ways in which you failed to do that. You know, that, that a pluralism has set in. Not the positive kind of pluralism, but the kind of pluralism where people were turning their back on the one true God and worshiping false gods. Not only that, injustice had set in. You know, immorality had set in. Um, and, and you could see there's so many parallels between Isaiah's day and our day. And I would imagine, given the state of modern medicine back then, there was probably, you know, multiple pandemics going on. So everything is falling apart. The foundations are shaking. The king dies, the one bright spot. And yet, that's when Isaiah sees God. So what's great is that God's there for him. God's there for his people when things are falling apart, but we're going to see the foundations actually shake even more because here's what happens. We're told that he's, he's high and lifted up. You know, he's seated on a throne. What this is already getting across is God's, his power, his majesty, his, his lordship almost, because kings would, you know, show their, their status by the size of their thrones and the majesty of their robes. So whether it's, you know, the translation being the train of his robe filled the temple, that is, it was such a large robe, or whether, you know, the hem of his robe, that is, you know, the, the majesty of it, the thread count of it, the beauty of it. Either way, the, the point is the same, that here is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And when, when the King who we thought would bring peace and prosperity dies, yet here is the true King. And we're told that above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. With two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So there's fire, there's smoke, there's an earthquake. Everything is shaking because of God's presence and in God's presence we're told that it's it's his holiness that shines through that Isaiah is able to see God when the foundations are shaking but it actually makes his foundations shake even more we're told it's because of this holiness so what is what is holiness what's so important about it that it's actually the only description of God that's used three times because you see in Hebrew if you wanted to say something with emphasis we didn't have words like very or really right Instead, you would repeat it. So if, if it was the purest gold, it would be gold, gold. If it was the deepest pits, it would be pit, pits. Or, you know, the, and another example, um, the, the, the shepherds, when the angels show up to them in the Christmas story, they're afraid, afraid, right? It doubles it. But here we have holy, holy, holy. Now we typically think of holiness as morality, right? Like, oh, he's a holy person or he's a holy man. But is that what they're saying? Like... Well-behaved, well-behaved, well-behaved is the Lord God Almighty. So holiness isn't less than morality, but it's got to be more, right? 
And yet, at the same time, things were holy. Uh, so a table in the temple, and that's where this takes place, or a shovel in the temple, or a bowl in the temple, would be holy because it was separate, or it was devoted unto God. So are they saying separate, 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 or devoted, devoted, devoted? So, okay, so holiness is not less than being separated or devoted to God, but it's obviously got to be more. And so theologians have tried their best to get at this, and in some ways it's, it's almost saying this is his godness, his majesty, his, his holiness is both terrifying and beautiful all at the same time. And to stand in his presence, well, these seraphims, we're not sure exactly who they are, but they're so, there's these fiery beings, they're morally pure, and yet they have to cover up, right? Both their, their feet and their face because they can't behold this holy God in an unfiltered way. And, and the best way to probably get this across via live stream um, is, is not so much to explain it more and more, but let's look at how Isaiah reacts to it. How does Isaiah react to this holiness? Well, it says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So, Isaiah, the holy man, God's prophet, who's been telling everyone that they're cursed, all the ways in which they've forsaken God, in which they've failed to be who God has called them to be, all of those, those things come crashing down on him, that he's now the one who should be cursed. Or it says here, I am unclean. To be unclean, you know, wasn't just to be dirty. It was actually a religious term and a social term, right? The unclean were those who were diseased, those who were a danger to the rest of the, of, of the nation, the rest of the camp, the rest of the community. To be unclean means you had to be separated, not in the holy kind of separated, but in the outcast, go away, you're a danger to us kind of separated. And Isaiah, the one who's in with God the best because he's the prophet, is saying, I'm on the outs. And I recently heard, on ESPN of all places, that a true existential crisis is when you stop believing the story you tell yourself about yourself. And that's what Isaiah is going through because notice what does he say is unclean about him? His lips. Okay, the guy's a prophet. He's a preacher. That's literally his moneymaker. Okay? And he's really good at it because if you read the book of Isaiah, it it's... Obviously, such a magnificent piece of work that we're still reading it thousands of years later. And yet, Isaiah is saying, my greatest asset is in the presence of God, my biggest liability. How is that the case? And, and is this what we should expect when we come into the presence of God? Right? Because this isn't, this isn't a lot of positive self-talk so far. Uh, is this really what we want for ourselves? You know, to just come into God's presence and just feel like awful worms we have to grovel and show how unworthy we are well it's not just that and we'll get to the self-talk thing in a moment because one of the sticky points with that is is how do you have positive self-talk without being a narcissist right so are you supposed to be positive to a point but not so positive that it's socially unacceptable and where is that line and how do you balance that out and so 
you know, be humble, but talk positively. How do you, how do you do that exactly? Well, we'll get to that when we show how God is going to give him an unshakable foundation. But notice first how all the foundations are shaking, that Isaiah is tempted to lean on his gifts, on his strengths, on the things that he's good at as a means for how he's going to make a productive life of meaning and significance. And yet in the presence of God, those are the things that are his biggest liability. You know, whenever I hear this story, I'm always reminded of um, a story that first came to me from Tim Keller that's attributed to Charles Spurgeon, but I've still yet to, to track down the original source of it. So I'll give you what I, what I remember. And that is, you know, there's this great king who owns his kingdom. And one day a carrot farmer comes to him and the carrot farmer says to him, Oh, Lord King, I'm so grateful for your leadership and how you, you tend to our kingdom. You know, I'm just a poor, humble carrot farmer. This is the, the greatest carrot I've ever grown. And I just want to give it to you, you know, out of thanks and gratitude. And the king, even though it's just a carrot, is actually touched. It's like, wow. And so as the carrot farmer turns to go away, the king says, you know, wait, wait a second. Of course, I own all the fields next to your carrot farm. I, I want to give those to you. Uh, just, I'm touched by your devotion. I want to give you more. And so obviously the carrot farmer goes away rejoicing. Well, the next room over, there's a nobleman who overhears all this and thinks to himself, ah, a field for a carrot? Well, so he comes in the next day leading one of his best horses. He bows low and he says, Oh, great king, out of my devotion and thanks, I come as but a humble horse breeder and want to give you the finest horse I've ever bred. And the king, you know, looks at this magnificent horse and says, well, Thank you. I, I truly appreciate your, your humble gift. And takes it and leads the horse away. Of course he turns because at this point the nobleman still bowed low is you know kind of looking up with the one eye like and and the king turns and says you know that carrot farmer yesterday you overheard he was giving me the carrot but the fact of the matter is is you came today to give yourself the horse and the reason i tell this story is because when isaiah comes into the presence of god the very good things that he's even done, not just the bad things in the way he's let God go, but the very good things he's done, he begins to realize are, are tainted with his own selfishness, his own pride, his own gain. That even some of the reasons he's being a prophet, right? Being an influencer, you could say, because tradition tells us that his brother was the father to the king, that he's he's elite, he's educated, he gets invited to all the great parties, he knows all the right people, he's in a position now to steer the country in the right direction, and yet he realizes at the heart of all of it, in the presence of this holy God, he sees his own pride and selfishness still. You know, it's like any of us who stand in the presence of greatness. That if, if God is wisdom and truth, and holy, holy, holy wisdom and truth, to stand in his Greatness would make you feel, well, foolish and unintelligent. If God is love, to stand in his presence would make you feel like the most selfish person who's ever walked the face of the earth. 
And yet, so if God is holy, 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 terrifying and beautiful all at the same time, to stand in his presence would make us feel exposed. That's what it means to see God, is that your foundations will shake even more. You'll begin to see that all the things that you count as assets are actually liabilities. You know, the Apostle Paul goes into this in the book of Philippians, where he says, you know, all his pedigrees, all his education, all, all his status, he counts as gain so that he can know the Lord Jesus. And you think, well, what does that mean? How does that work? You know, well, the reason God does this, the reason God exposes himself to Isaiah in such a powerful way, it's not because he wants Isaiah to, you know, grovel and see how unworthy it is. But it's because he wants Isaiah to have an unshakable foundation. He doesn't want Isaiah to rely on things that are shakable or things that are temporary, things that will pass away. But he wants to give him a completely unshakable foundation. But as we go into that second point, I just kind of want to pause right now and ask, what's your view of confession? Not just, you know, where we confess, like confess our faith, the Nicene Creed, but like confession, like actually like tell God the ways in which you, you've failed, the ways in which the bad things you've done obviously fall short of who he's called us to be, but even your good things are tainted with a measure of selfishness and pride and gain. Um, is your view of confession like, oh, I better do that so he doesn't get me? Or is your view of confession, well, let me get this over with. Or is your view of confession, you know, well, I don't really have that much to confess. I mean, in which I'll, I'll admit there's times where you just feel like you're going through life and things are good and you're fine. You're fine. Things are fine. Sure, you snap at the kids and you get into a tiff with the spouse, but things are fine. You see, confession, as we now know, is one of the pathways into knowing the real God. But if it's something that you see is bitter or that you need to get over with, or you better make sure you do it right, I'm afraid you haven't quite captured it because confession is actually a response to seeing God. And so if you're just fine and things are going well, it's a sign of the need for spiritual renewal. But I will say this, I will say this, if you're feeling guilty or if you're feeling dry, that's actually a good sign because you don't thirst for a God whom you've never tasted. You don't feel guilty over a person that you haven't wronged, that those things could actually be the beginnings, right? Of how you're actually experiencing the one true God. And this is true of all the people in the Bible. I could go through example after example, none more famous than the apostle Peter himself, who stood before Jesus and said, please go away from me. I'm unclean. I don't deserve to be in your presence. So if that's what it means to see God, is our foundations will shake. Well, the second thing we'll see is that God only ever shakes your foundations, only ever makes you feel that dryness, that guilt, that shame, um, he, he leads in those things not just to punish or to crush, but actually to give an unshakable foundation. This gets back to that positive self-talk of how do you have positive self-talk and not be a narcissist? Well, here's the answer, right? And it's 
it's found in this little this little story here that where it says here's what happens one of the seraphs flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for so notice right off the bat the very place that God enters into his life, God sends this, this being into his life, is right at his point of confession. That's why it's so important. But you have to know that before the coal touches Isaiah's lips, the very place where he says he's the most unclean, the very place that God enters in, before that even happens, he sees the fire of God, he thinks I'm dead. Right? I mean, and this is the consuming fire of God. Even the, you know, the seraph has to use tongs to bring it down. There's this story, you know, in the book of Numbers where Nadab and Abihu are, you know, disrespecting God and, and fire comes out of the altar and just consumes them. And, uh, and Isaiah's thinking, I'm dead. I'm in the presence of God. I see God. I'm going to be consumed and burned up and it's what I deserve after all. But we're told that this coal touches his lips and he hears these words. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. How? How is, what's the significance of this coal? How does this happen? How is it that God, that Isaiah can stand in God's presence and not be consumed? How is it Isaiah can see God and not die? Well, this, the, the, the secret there is actually in this idea of the, the coal. And where that coal comes from, you see that that coal comes from the altar. And this would have been the altar in the temple, right? The altar where you made sacrifices on Yom Kippur and the Passover and the high holidays. Sacrifices that were meant to show this is how you're made right with God. is through a sacrifice. The way that your sin will be atoned for. And that word atonement is just, you could break it up. You know, say at one mint, at one with. You know, the way that your separation from God, the way you can be brought back together is going to be through a sacrifice through this altar. And you see it is at the very point of his weakness where God touches his lips. That it, God somehow takes now what Isaiah said is my, my greatest asset is my greatest liability in the presence of this holy God. God said it's, he, it's at that liability when you admit that through confession that that can actually be your greatest asset. This concept of strength and weakness that that's where God meets us. And the way this is possible is because we're told in the book of John, John chapter 12, that when Isaiah went into the temple, this God whom he sees, he sees Jesus. This Jesus high and seated on a throne is the same Jesus who would step off that throne and become a vulnerable, weak child. That the creator and Lord of the universe would become, you know, cells of an organism. That he would step off his throne into a manger. Not only that, he then would take off his robes and just put on humble clothes. Humble clothes for whom a woman would come to him one day and would touch the hem of his garment just hoping and praying that maybe, just maybe, he would be the cure for what ails her. And he draws near to her 
at her point of weakness, he draws near to her. But not only that, he would be stripped of even those humble clothes. He would be completely naked. He would be mocked as the king of the Jews. And he would be crucified. We're told that it's by his wounds that you are healed. So what you have to understand is that in, in the book of Deuteronomy, we're told that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. And you understand Jesus was taken outside of the city as one who was unclean, one who was a danger to his own people, one who needed to be cast out, one who would then be hung on a tree, one who would be cursed for us. One who, when he died, the foundations of the temple would shake again. And because of his death, the temple, the curtain that separated God and his presence from his people would be torn in two from top to bottom. That Jesus is the sacrifice who brings us atonement and makes us at one with God. You see, when King Uzziah died, there was the fear that peace and prosperity would go away forever. But when King Jesus dies, his humble death, taking upon himself our curse, taking upon himself our uncleanness, he actually brings peace and prosperity for eternity. That this, this is how you have positive self-talk without being a narcissist is when you stand before the God who sees everything about you, you're fully exposed, and yet you understand that he became fully exposed for you. That he took your curse upon himself. This gets to one of my favorite lines in the Christmas song, O Holy Night, that long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. This is how you know your worth. This is how you have an unshakable foundation is when you understand what he appeared to do was to take your curse. What he appeared to do was to heal you and to make you one with God again so that you could really actually know him. And if you're thinking that sounds too good to be true, or if you're thinking I need that truth to be renewed in me again, then that means that God is really at work in your life. So then that third point, and I'm already pushing my time here, so I'll try and be... I'll be brief here. We'll land the plane on this. God builds upon that foundation a life of meaning and significance beyond what that we can imagine. You see, this is why I asked earlier, what's your view of confession? What's your view of it? Is it just admitting your failure and weakness? Right? Is it bitter? Is it hard? Um, or is it as natural as coming out of the water and taking a deep breath of air? that you would come into God's presence and confess the ways in which you failed to measure up, fully assured that you can admit all the ways in which you're unclean because Jesus is the one who can cleanse you. If you, if you are able to actually experience that kind of freedom, if, if you can come to that understanding of that's what the gospel is, that it's good news, that that's what it actually means, then it's out of that that God will build a life of meaning and significance beyond what you could imagine. Because here's why. Isaiah is going to die in utter failure. 
he's told that in the rest of his prophecy. Go, and no one's going to listen. And you imagine, Isaiah's thinking, okay, like what? We're talking like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, or 40, 40 years. De Israel, desert, 40, it's going to be 40 years, huh, God? It's like, no, never. You're actually going to preach so that people can't hear you. And yet, because Isaiah has this principle that he's fully seen and yet fully loved. He's fully exposed and yet completely accepted. He's able to go, okay. He goes from, woe is me, I'm ruined, get me out of here, to here am I, send me. Like, here am I, God, I want to be here with you. Jesus would die in utter failure in the eyes of the world. And yet, it was out of that failure that comes meaning, significant salvation for all of us. He lived the most meaningful life. And so it's true for us that in, in Orange County, where we're pressured with all the ways for what a meaningful, satisfying life is, and all the ways in which we fall short of that, we have this promise here that it's no, it's actually meaning, meaningful, satisfying lives are built on this principle out of, out of confession, out of weakness, out of strength. So, you know, one of the things that we try to say a lot at our church that we've stolen from other churches and stolen from Pastor Eric. Um, and know that when I say nice things about Pastor Eric, it's not because I have to do it obligatory. It's because I actually mean them and, and want to grow up to be just like him one day. Um, but really, it's it's we like to say we don't want to be a church that's an interview room, but we want to be the hospital waiting room. Right. Or as I heard one pastor say recently, we want the church sanctuary to sound like the church basement. Because it's in the church basement that the 12-step groups meet. Where the first step is to admit your brokenness. Is to say, hi, I'm here, I'm weak, I'm needy. You know, that's what we say, the hospital room. I'm not here to impress, I'm here because I'm needy. Versus the interview room, which is I'm here because I'm going to be as impressive as possible or I'm here because I'm trying to get respect and I'm here actually to actually try and outdo all these people around me and that you compare and compete with everyone and you kind of scan the room and know okay not as good as him as good as him and then the people that you want to to get close to are not the people who are the unclean but it's the people and not the people who bring healing because you don't think you need it but it's the people who can who can give more status to you right or bring you more success and 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 we want the church to be the exact opposite of that, right? We want the church to be that. Because it's when someone stands up and shares about how they were addicted to pornography or their marriage was completely in shambles or they struggled with eating disorder or they felt like a failure because of how they weren't advancing in their career. When someone shares out of their weakness, you see, that's actually the power for the life of the church. Because it's through that confession, it's through admitting our life, you know, my greatest assets are actually my biggest liabilities. It's in that moment that God meets us, because that's where God met Isaiah. That's where Jesus meets us. Because God is not attracted to Isaiah, because Isaiah is talented. And God's not attracted to you because you have something to offer. God's attracted to you, actually, in your point of weakness. 
God meets you at that point of confession. That's what's so powerful about this. See, someone who probably could sum up this whole message as we look at the life of Isaiah would be this guy, Jack Miller. Biography just came out about him recently. You know, and he's had a huge influence, you know, on, on our churches. And he has these famous sayings, and those famous sayings actually frame the chapter headings for his book. So his, one of his famous sayings is always, cheer up, you're worse than you think. Because if you actually stood in the presence of a holy God, you would understand more and more that you don't even understand the depths of the ways in which you fall short of his glory. But then he would say, cheer up, you're far more loved than you could ever imagine. That this God sees your uncleanness and provides cleansing and wants you to be one with him. And you don't even understand the depths to which he loves you. But then he has a third famous saying, and that would be, cheer up, come and die. It's the best way to live. See, that's what Isaiah is invited into. That's what we're invited into is to live lives where we lean into our weakness, not our strengths. We understand our strengths. I mean, as good as they are, they can actually be liabilities that keep us from spiritual renewal and meeting God. And instead, we need to lean into our weakness because it's at that point that God meets us, not in a way in which we, we grovel, but in a way in which we actually truly see God and understand how much he loves, how much he sees us. It's only there that we can truly understand how the soul feels its worth. So let's pray. Father, we ask that this story of Isaiah would stir up in us ways in which we can see the threads of how you might be working in our own lives. God, that for those of us who feel guilty, you would bring comfort. For those of us, God, who feel dry, you would quench our thirst. God, and for those of us who feel apathy, the real danger, who just feel numb, that you would break into our lives. And whether, even if that means shaking our foundations, that you would help us to see you give us an unshakable foundation, that you would help all of us to see that what would look like to Orange County, a life that's just meaningless and a life that's death, why even live it at all, is actually the best way to live. That Jesus modeled for us that the way up is actually down, that it's actually humility that leads to grace, that it's actually coming with nothing is the way we're able to receive everything that you've offered to us. And yet we know that's so hard, so help us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.